there are a couple of kinds of questions. There are knowledge questions. Is it raining outside? Look outside the window. Answer no. End of question. But there are wisdom questions, which are which are more like cones. You, the, they have a potential each time you ask them to take you deeper into the question, deeper into yourself, and deeper into reality. And so the question of what's my intention and what I want to be my intention, those are wisdom questions, which ideally we'll be asking for the rest of our lives. And the answers we give will really shape and direct our lives and our destiny. And so I just want to put in a big plug for, for our ongoing attention to our intention. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. We explore the fields of neuroscience, integrative medicine, anthropology, optimal psychology, systems thinking, and existential risk. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. I am overjoyed to welcome our guest, uh, Dr. Roger Walsh, a dual MD, PhD, a teacher, one of the founders of the transpersonal psychology movement, a, a multiple author, um, perhaps best known for his books, Essential Spirituality and the Spirit of Shamanism, uh, among many others, and then also uh, the the host of a recently launched podcast, and, and Roger, can you just give us the quick, um, quick intro to that? It's its title, its topics, and where to find it. Let's see. the The title is Deep Transformation, Self Society Spirit, and the podcast basically is oriented in that direction. We really look interested in what, how do we transform ourselves most deeply in order to meet, meet the world as, and the needs of our time, how to contribute as effectively as possible, and how do we, how do we become what we need to be at this extraordinary time? Beautiful. Thank you. Well, bottom line, um, thank, you, thank you for coming and welcome to Homegrown Humans. Um, thank you, Jamie. It's, it's always a delight to uh, dialogue with you, so I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, and and just for for listeners, and just just to ground this, um, you know, because people are, you know, it's such a sort of you know whatever fame likes scale views kind of emphasis these days, and so you 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 might not be aware of Roger's life, career, body of work, but you need to know that that he is sort of has been one of the foundational voices in really the evolution of psychology beyond its kind of Freudian, Jungian, Adlerian, you know, boundaries and into sincerely exploring with rigor and discipline um, the notions of what are transpersonal states, what happens when we go beyond ourselves, our fixed ego identities, and, and where can we take it from here? Um, so just a huge, huge hat tip. You've been, you've been an influence on my, my thinking and my learning. Um, for a couple of decades, and um, just want to kind of just you know underscore that uh, for any listeners who you know who are maybe inspired from this conversation to go into your body of work um, because that that MD PhD plus sincere uh, embodied practitioner yourself um, that's a fairly rare combination, right? Somebody who has both got clinical and academic experience and background, um, and then also has done the work. And then has also contributed to the conversation and movement. So um, a huge, you know, a huge bow and appreciation 
um, for everything uh, you are and have done. Thanks so much, Jamie. Yeah, unfortunately, it is it is rare for academics and researchers to be deeply involved in spiritual and transformative practices. They're two different worlds, but hopefully we can bring those together more. Great. Well, if it's cool, I'd just love to just jump in the deep end. Um, Please. Which is that, you know, it feels like in the last few years, and certainly, I would, you know, you could, you could say the the wheels began coming off in 2016 with the US election and Brexit, and they came all the way off with COVID and quarantine and lockdown and our kind of collapses in meaning, shared reality, epistemology, you name it. Um, and I think more, you know, and particularly with the, uh, the rising drumbeat of concern um, with ecological sustainability, um, meta crisis, not just one thing, but lots of things, geopolitics, macroeconomics, ecology, sustainability, um, democracy, um, you name it. I think more and more people are saying, wait a second, right? Um, are we sailing off a cliff? Were we on the right track? Um, and, and really sort of questioning what, you know, for most of the, like, the second half of the 20th century and the first decade, at least of the 21st was, almost an unquestioned sense of we're on the happy track of progress. And you can, you can kind of, you know, sort of say the, the whatever, or the apotheosis, that the high point of that was, you know, the kind of TED Talk era, you know, where <laughs> everything was breathy new discoveries and making the world a better place and exponential change, the techno-utopian vibes of Silicon Valley, the Hans Rosling, stuff on hey doom and gloom shows up in the news but you know but reality is as everything's getting better Steven Pinker um, was clearly you know has been a very prominent voice of that the Harvard the Harvard linguist um, and and you know and in fact you know your your longtime friend Ken Wilber and his contributions in integral theory right I mean one of the main things of integral theory particularly for the progressive left was saying hey this kind of retro romanticism of saying we've overshot and we need to go back to the land. We need to decommodify. We need to get out of technology and progress. We need to go back to indigenous wisdoms and those kinds of things. And, you know, and integral theory was quite a strong voice countering that. It was saying, it was saying, hey, don't, don't mistake fleeting high points of shamans and sages for the overall level of reality or level of culture, civilization, lived experience of the past and the way out is through the way the way out is forwards it's always forwards and then you kind of had Yuval Harari you know coming out with sapiens about five years ago and that was kind of one of the first sort of highbrow you know in the sense of you know Oxford professor historian that kind of stuff you know takes on kind of dusting off the retro romantic you know I mean and, and Harari and several others of that you know of that time period started saying hey actually, you know, basically digging up what was probably your wheelhouse, right? It was like that 60s, 70s era anthropology of, hey, you know, hunter-gatherers were supposed to be scrapping around for bugs, you know, bugs and berries. Um, the reality is they only spent a third of their time providing for their basic needs. They spent two thirds of their time kicking it, you know, telling stories, shooting the shit, you know, making art and crafts and this and that, and, and is, wasn't that a better era? And Harari, in a weird way to me, that was completely unchallenged by popular readers, people just lapped up sapiens which i thought historiographically was riddled with question marks you know places to slow down and be like, are you sure because i mean i i remember his his chapter four where he tells the edenic story 
of Neolithic. Everything was groovy. And then he sort of accelerates the, the tape, you know, when you go from 300,000 years ago to 10,000 years ago, where the shit hits the fan, proverbially, right? And then we get into the agrarian area, we get the advent of patriarchy, we get decreased nutrition, you know, we, we, we get the advent of slavery, we get sort of command, control, bureaucratic structures, and that's the beginning of the end. And that's chapter four in Sapiens, if anybody's listening along at home. And I flipped to the back of the book, I'm like, wait a second, because that was my, that was my field in grad school as well. So I was mm -hmm. like, wait, what is he saying? He's making all sorts of bald ass assertions. And I was like, I must have missed what's happened in the field in the last 10 years, went to the back of the book and his entire chapter four, where he goes from 300,000 years, or at least hundred thousand years ago to 10,000 years ago, there's not a single footnote. That entire chapter of Sapiens is an op-ed. And you're just like, whoa, 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 whoa. But that is now, that is now um, sort of permeated the contemporary conversation. Right. So, so, so many, many people. And then the same, I don't know if you, if you saw that book, which was, you know, questionable anthropology also, but it was uh, Sex at Dawn, which came out. It was Chris Ryan. It came out about It was, I mean, in a nutshell, it became the tome validating the polyamory movement. Because ah. it was basically like chimps bad, bonobos good, you know, <laughs> right. women, women are lusty and promiscuous. And, you know, that's the way it always used to be. It was ever thus. And now we get to be bonobos again, you know, in a really, really rough gloss. Um, so, so my point being is that just in the last decade, right, we've had a rise in popular scholarship that is starting to say perhaps um, there was a golden age in the past and we've overshot the mark. So classic Rousseauian retro-romanticism in some respects. And we've also been wrestling in our face in the last five years or so with increasingly hard to refute evidence that this civilization may not be on a sustainable path. So help me, and what are your thoughts on understanding, you know, arguably the transpersonal psychological developmental models that we're always evolving to increased complexity versus None of that really holds water if we snuff it. Yeah, to put it mildly. <clears throat> and I'll just say, I didn't even finish Harari's book. I got so uh, upset with it. So I'm <laughs> glad that one of us did. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's rather painful to see the extent to which um, claims like that, broad sweeping claims, uh, are acceptable. And of course, we can see the appeal of simple ideas. Uh, you know, they just appeal, they're simple, they're clear, they explain lots of things, you don't have to have complex question marks, etc. But stepping back, I have grave trouble with any claims about this is the way things or this is the way it's not going up, down, sideways, because as far as I can see, there are so many conflicting currents moving in so many different directions that you have to decide on what parameter you were talking about, what phase, for what duration, in what subgroup, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the degree to which one can make these sweeping generalizations to my mind, well, frankly, my reaction is somewhere between nausea and, and, and a sense of craziness. So <laughs> I think that, you know, <clears throat> You mentioned Ken Wilber, and I'm a, definitely a friend and a fan of Ken's work. I think it's brilliant. I think he's got the biggest uh, mental map or conceptual map we have of our time. And one of the things I keep saying to him is, I don't think the world is as, cl is as cl clear and, as your mind. <laughs> you know, the trouble with maps is the maps simplify by necessity. 
otherwise they're not useful. But the downside of that is, is you know, the map is not the territory, as the old saying Kominsky goes. So, uh, so my first general comment to what you're saying is, I'm not comfortable with any of these simple maps. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I think if we're to have, if we're to be more accurate and ultimately more contributory, we're going to have to get more specific, more detailed, and more nuanced. And yes. uh, and be a little more uh, humble in our claims, and and sit in the reality of absolute mystery. That at at bottom, all is mystery. And here's the here's our, our best guesses. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the image to me, and I don't know when or how it came to me, but it was sort of that. It was you know, I, I think it was probably studying. Uh, John Gray's work at London School of Economics. I don't know if you know John Gray's stuff, but he wrote, uh, this, this is a book I'm forever name checking, but it's Black Math, Black Mass, The Death of Utopia and Apocalyptic, Apocalyptic Religion and the Death of Utopia. And he basically just points out how, um, how the, the redemption curve, you know, of, of a fundamentally a rapture ideology, right, is so deeply rooted in the Western tradition. It's the Hebraic, alpha and omega, you know, the idea of that kind of transition from indigenous and even agrarian cyclical time to a linear time, that there was a beginning and there's going to be an end, mm -hmm. right? And that the plot arc is fucking bog standard, like right? it's incredibly repetitive, which is an Edenic initial state, a fall from grace, a redemptive moment, right? Whether that's, you know, Jesus and rolling back the stone or second comings or whatever it would be, and then a happily ever after. And just saying that is so hardwired into the, at least into the Western mindset and ethos that it is a deep narrative structure. And we pretty much pour anything and everything into it, including um, communism, that was just that same exact arc minus a god, you know, we, mm -hmm. we, were, we were workers and we, we were agrarian, we were farmers, we were whatever. Then along came capitalism, industrialism, that was the fall from grace, proletariat, workers' paradise, right? Same exact pattern. And that's fine, you know, neat historical tidbit, but except that we are seeing it again with Web3. We are seeing it again with crypto. We are seeing it again with the psychedelic renaissance. You're seeing it with any proposed solution pretty much these days. Yeah, that right. makes a lot of lot of sense, and also makes sense in what we now know about the the psychology of narratives. Yes. And that there's a limited number of narrative scripts that we seem to run our run through our minds and run our minds around and by. And one of them, as you mentioned, is the redemptive script. Things things are okay. Things got bad. I did bad, but there's hope. And here's the answer. Here's the answer. Here's the solution. There are yeah. other narrative scripts, but yeah, I think you're right. I think that this is some deep, deeper psychological structure around which we can we can mold any number of different content. Yeah, well, so and so here's the thing that blew my mind, and I'd love your thoughts on it, right? So, so we get that. I mean, I'm making a shape. I'm making a curve with my hand here for those of you just listening to the audio. But um, that idea of that's the hockey stick, right? We're, we're here, mm -hmm. and then it, and then it goes up like a ski jump. Right. And then I was just wondering, I was like, oh, well, what if, because we're all experiencing accelerating change, you look around, you're like, that's truthy, like that feels real. And if you take a look at almost any metric, right, of contemporary civilization, things trundle along pretty much flatlining, and it could be for 10,000 years or 100,000 years, population levels, you know, et cetera, et cetera, poverty, all these things. And then, you know, whatever, 1850s, 
you know, up it starts, 1900s, 1950s starts hitting the steep wall of the curve and everything goes up and to the right. Yeah. And, and, I, and I was wondering, I was like, well, that seems sort of incontrovertibly true in some levels um, because we've all been experiencing it and everything from population from 1 billion to 8 billion, you know, all that stuff is incontrovertibly asymptotic, right? It, it, it's that exponential curve. But what if you just pan back a bit? And if you're like, oh, we are in the knee of that curve or even already climbing the steep wall, like almost like a skateboarder on a half pipe. Um, but what if you pan back further and that's actually just the arc of a circle and we're actually in a larger cyclical loop? You know, so are we in time's arrow, right? Progressing to some, to some apotheosis or culmination, you know, like Francis Fukuyama's end of history kind of ideas. Mm -hmm. is, is there a steady state or an endpoint? Is there a teleological thrust to where we're going? Or if you actually just pan back, are we that little ant, you know, on a curve, but that curve actually circles back around, right? And we're actually in a larger arc of cyclical history. And whether that's Hindu mythologies and Kali Yugas or Hopi prophecies or Steve Bannon's favorite, you know, the fourth turning, right? Are we actually grist for the mill on a bigger cycle or are we on a trajectory for escape velocity out of, you know, the historical constraints of human consciousness and culture? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lots of good, good ideas there. First off, uh, we need to acknowledge that the technology for the first time has introduced an exponential change factor. All the other changes throughout history have been, uh, if you look at you know, cultural or evolution, they've been incremental, but they haven't been exponential. And so that's a whole new factor. And there's been this tendency to draw the curves, as you said, showing the hockey shape, you know, the stick is going up, oh, it's exponential. But that's clearly not the end of the story and step back as far as you want. We don't know what the shape is going to be. Is it going to be a, a standard ecological uh, ex population explosion and crash? Is it going to be you know, the big, uh, big bang of some kind? We have, we have no idea what the larger picture is. But the one thing we probably do really want to introduce here is to a significant degree, the shape of that curve or the nature of that, that uh, uh, geometry is going to be a function of our choices. And so it's going to come back to us. It's not the, the shape is not necessarily preordained. It's, it's a function of our choices, our values, our priorities, and our awareness and consciousness. And, you know, we come back to the idea we're in a race between consciousness and catastrophe. So mm. I haven't, uh, I haven't heard, I haven't heard that. Nice well, yes. Well, consciousness uh, and catastrophe. That's the way it seems to me anyway, that we, re that we really are. Well, between you know, the other major parameter I think of is, as our capacity for growing wisdom to balance out the extraordinary technological advances, which are increasing exponentially versus our psychological growth skills and capacities and technologies, which are increasing literally. So if we look sad wisdom, we're also in a race between sagacity and catastrophe. We're in, you know, we have these, it, but bottom line, it's up to us. And that, so the curve is not preordained. Just unpack that for us. I mean, is that how you have always felt? Is it, is it a sort of increasing wrestling with the, what appear to be inevitable consequences of our 
oversights and, and excesses right now? How, how, have you, how have you gone from, let's say, the 70s to the 90s or even to the even the early 2000s? You know, I mean, you know, if you think of Ray Kurzweil, if you think of Peter Diamandis, some of the folks that are like, it's just hockey sticks up and to the right. Everything is being virtualized. The cost of everything is developing down towards free. We will have holodecks, manu- you know, ma- making whatever we want. We will upload our consciousness, you know, and then you can, you know, we're, we're pointing very quickly towards the metaverse and the current conversations. But have you tempered any sort of transpersonal optimism, you know, or sense of, or, or, you know, heady possibility with any sort of increasing, increasingly sober? sense of both the consequences and, and and even the potential likelihoods of overshoot or collapse. How do you hold it? Well, I would say that developmentally for me, the tension has been a, a perennial. And way back in the 80s, one of the first books I wrote was on the psychology of human survival. At that time, it was the height of the Cold War and was every chance we would blow ourselves up. And, and there still is, of course. And that's just one of the many threats we're facing. I would say the change now is that the number of of threats that are evident and that are really in our in our face has increased. So uh, so to me, it's always been this the the extraordinary challenge of holding both the both the ex- existential threats that we are now creating for ourselves in combination with the human the, the potentials and capacities that are available to us and our, on another dimension our spiritual nature which i you know i've spent 40 years exploring as deep you know pretty deeply and seems remarkable and then the the themes is, for example, in in uh, stealing fire of you know what are our potentials? We don't even really know what our potentials are. So ha- so I'm I've been for a long time interested in how do we hold all these and the not knowing. And so in one sense, it doesn't feel it feels like you know the map my maps have changed but the the challenge remains the same and then just step back and look at it just psychologically i what i see is that we are prone as you've said to to simplify into a single narrative but even more so to simplify on one perspective and as as i look at psychological well, well, can, 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 can you can you just tease those things apart because i think you mean something there and i don't want it to get missed not just a narrative, but a single perspective within that narrative. What does that What does that mean to you? Uh, I I take perspective as a, a viewpoint or vantage point, or a, a place from which to look, and from a particular place to look, you can you can spin out narratives, you can spin out theories, you can hold, you can have emotional reactions, etc. So the those are different contents or effects of the perspective, the, the starting point, the place from which we're looking. And as far you know, people looking at development look at various parameters, but for me, it seems like the capacity to adopt m- more than one perspective in fact, the capacity to hold multiple perspectives is one of the key developmental factors. And there are various skills, perspectival skills that we as individuals and as a culture need to develop. First off, 
the capacity to take multiple perspectives, the capacity for perspectival fluidity to move between multiple perspectives, the capacity for increased perspectival span, the capacity to step back and develop meta-perspectives and meta-meta-perspectives. So there's a whole range of capacities that just, as far as I can see, never get talked about. And I don't know why, because it seems like it's so crucial and, and a, a, a factor that underlies and is behind and prior to many of the other uh, issues and dimensions that are often looked at, narrative being one example. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 absolutely. But not, and here's here's my thing. And I mean, some of this is, can be, you know, the ongoing postmortem on integral theory and it and its collapse and or wobbliness and those kind of things. But also, you know, I, I find myself spending a lot of time talking with clever people, which is usually I'm really excited by at first, and then I often end up frustrated and 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 disappointed by by the end of the conversation and i was just thinking of um there's a fellow donald hoffman who's a neuroscientist mm -hmm. right at uc irvine and he gave mm -hmm. that i think fairly largely circulated ted talk on constructed reality the idea that we're not actually perceiving base reality like he, he uses the analogy of you know the the screen on our desk you know home screen on our computers with all the apps and icons and the idea that there's a little folder you know, in the lower right corner where I click to go and find my Word document, but it's not really there. And what's actually happening in the computer is transistors and precious metals and, you know, and, and an LED screen and all that kind of stuff. And his point is, is that we are fundamentally, um, we are engaged in a representational reality, right, versus base reality. And his point, it gets into sort of a little bit like information theory, like that base reality is just kind of zeros and ones information. But the, the piece that I want to run past you sort of as a question mark on clever people these days, right? And on infinite perspectivality, right? Where we can always slice and dice it. We can always put in another quadrant. We can always do another line and level. We can always add another bit to our maps. Is he ran evolutionary game theory models? I don't know if you, if you track mm -hmm. that stuff. And he was basically like, hey, what does evolution select for? Does it select for perceiving and apprehending truth in its most comprehensive form? Or does it select for survival fitness? And in all of his game theoretic models that they ran again and again and again, it was something like that. If I select for fitness, my ability to get mine now, whatever that would be, whether that's you know sex and reproduction or whether that's money, food, power, whatever it would be, I am actually better adapted. So actually evolution favors delusion, like self-oriented, self mm. effective delusion versus comprehensive grokking of all the fundamental nature of being, right? And, I, and, and, I, and, and my first thought was like, I was like, oh shit, that explains why, how, or at least one of the factors, of why wisdom has been captured in the spiritual marketplace these days, right? If I look sexy in Lululemon pants and I've got a quarter of a million followers on Instagram, you're more likely to come to my retreat. That could be somebody who's holding it down, some lineage teacher living in a cave or a monastery or some, you know, incredibly profound teacher, but they don't, they're, they either don't know how to play the current social media influencer game or are just massively disinclined to. And they may be holding gems of wisdom, but they are maladapted for selective fitness. Whereas the people who are like, yeah, I'm going to flog spirituality and I'm going to piggyback off Marianne Williamson and A Course in Miracles or Eckhart Tolle. I'm going to do some derivative shit 
but I'm going to wrap it in ego-based desire. You can use this. You can use the secret to make millions of bucks. And here I am in my Airbnb mansion in Bali, right? That that is actually privileged where actually all the clever people these days, right? Who can map and see everything are basically just going to get steamrolled. Yeah, well, many, many things in what you said, Jamie. First off, um, I would just want to step back and say I have problems with running uh, running human nature through any one lens, and I, I know you do too. So the idea that uh, uh, evolutionary game theory explains it all, well, I know you didn't say that, but uh, Hoffman and others seem to, uh, doesn't do it for me. It doesn't doesn't acknowledge the the multidimensional nature of our being, the multi-level nature of our being, et cetera, et cetera, and it assumes a uh, assumes a world um, you know has a materialistic un, uh, worldview underpinning. So, and and those findings need to be held within whatever larger context we we uh, adopt and taken into account. So uh, I, I, there's a simplistic choice of, okay, well, I don't believe, you know, I, I'm a spiritual person. I don't believe, you know, an evolutionary theory. Well, good luck, uh, because we are, you know, clever chimps on the one hand, but we're not only clever chimps. Uh, so all, so, so that's, you know, that's, I guess what I'm trying to point trying to point to is the necessity for always being willing to to uh, do not only deduction or abduction, but what we might call preduction. That is, look at our presuppositions and keep looking at those. And you know, anyone can do deduction. Preduction is much more important and much rarer. And so, uh, so the pushing towards us towards looking at our assumptions always seems a, a key factor if we're really to, to get out of the, whatever net we're in. Would, um, would you say, by the way, that preduction, as you're describing it, is analogous to Chris Audris's single double triple loop learning? Is triple loop learning comparable to preduction? Uh, that's a good question. You know, you probably know that better than I do. I've been trying to track down a really good description definition of that. It seems like those those concepts are very wishy-washy as far as I can see. I mean, mm. to me, they make total, total sense that, that in each case, it's a stepping back and it is, and it can, it could be a kind of preduction, uh, although I hadn't put those two together. So thank you. Uh, what would you say? Well, I mean, you know, if, if anybody's not familiar, Chris Sardis was a you know, famous uh, Harvard Business School professor. Um, and I think he wrote the notions of single loop learning is just me, hot stove, ouch. You know, double loop learning is actually thinking about my thinking or learning from past experience. And then triple loop learning could be thinking about the ways I think about my thinking, right? <laughs> which sounds like you're getting somewhere in that same neighborhood of what you're describing. Um, yeah, yeah, it's all yeah, triple loop. And to the extent one can even hold the possibility of fourth order loop uh, is, is a making what was, was the process the content of a, of analysis now. Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and so, and so, I mean, I, I just jumped to Instagram spirituality as an example of selection for fitness, not selection mm -hmm. for truth, right? But I also, you know, the other one that comes to mind is sort of the acid casualties of your generation, 
right? So, so folks that went so deeply into multi-perspectival awareness that they then became maladapted for holding down a job Monday morning, you know, managing life, those kinds of things. Um, what, what's your, what's your sense? Um, I mean, some of this could just be contextual. We're in a Western market-based economy, et cetera, et cetera, where we have to kind of sing for our suppers um, versus we're Tibetan lamas in a monastery where people bring us food, <laughs> you know, or Ramakrishna, right? Blissed out on God consciousness and just shepherded into the Kali temple and, you know, <laughs> you know, looked right. after. <laughs> yes. In fact, right? uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think you're pointing to one of some of the principles of development, which aren't spoken about so much. There's you in your re recent book, Recapture the Rapture, gave a lot of attention to, to inducing various rapture states. And that's, that's a very, that's even, you know, that's a really important first step. Not so often talked about is the, is the integrative process, which is really uh, uh, just not dealt with so much or well in spiritual texts and history, but, but to have an altered state is, you know, it's, it's relatively easy with contemplative practice and certainly very easy with pharmaco pharmacological aids to integrate those into one's being first to is a is a developmental process and and that seems to be underplayed and and it's a and it's a multi-stage stage process it's first well, off wait wait did, did you say it's relatively easy but also underplayed meaning like mm -hmm. we could do it but we're not necessarily devoting enough attention to doing it no, sorry, I was saying, I, I obviously wasn't clear. I was saying that the state induction or the insights are, can be relatively easy, but, but the further stage of integrating them into one's life and well-being is, an is an ongoing challenge. And as we know, you know, you look at the temple, the, some of the temples in Japan, the two lion-like figures on each, each side, is sometimes said to represent confusion and paradox, and the person who would have wisdom has to pass, pass through both. And so there's an initial destabilizing stage in psychological growth. In fact, if you remember Castaneda from you know, many years ago, <laughs> the four traps of a person of knowledge. <laughs> First was fear. Second, interesting, was power. The mm. final, final one was, you know, because, you know, you get, do some practices, you get some power. And I'll jump to the final one, which was giving up with, with old age or sickness and just taking it easy. But then the third one was what was most interesting. The third trap of a person of knowledge is, is clarity. Clarity, because when you are clear, you have a map of the way things are. And that's what you have to give up in order to move to the bigger, more comprehensive, more integrated map. So we tend to think of think of confusion as a problem, but it can and it often is. Yet it can also be the doorway, the liminal phase to the between the new inside or altered state and the subsequent integration that's essential. Oh, okay, look, so, so now you've done a bunch of things which are worth unpacking, right? So so you said so I'm assuming this was a Zen temple. Is that 
Yes, Correct? Zen temples of Japan. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so confusion, you said, and paradox. Mm -hmm. Right, and then you went back to Kasanaz. So, if anybody doesn't remember teachings of Don Juan, he was the wily, nominal, like fringe anthropologist from UCLA. Wrote those books. They were the huge thing in the early seventies, and then revealed to be largely made up. But on the other hand, the wisdom, the insights, seem like they're they are durable. They were they were legit, even though he wrapped it in some fictive imagining. Yeah, as Michael Hanna, the anthropologist, said. I know Castaneda as well as anyone, and I don't know whether he was making these things up or not, but if he did, he's a genius. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and of course, these days in, in the post-truth era, I mean, every Netflix special, there's one on the, the inventing Anna, which was this Anna Del Delvey, who was some huge con artist, con artist in the New York society scene. And now it's like every single one of these things is true, except for all the bits that are made up. And like that, and then there are other ones that were prefaced with, you know, such and such and such and such a mostly true story or a true a story based, like everybody's playing with veracidal truths these days. And no one wants to be bound any longer by what's, you know, truthy true versus imaginal true. But, but can you just go back and restate the four things that Casanova said, the hangups for yeah, somebody four, on a path of knowledge? Four traps of a person of knowledge were first fear. And fear is something we all run into when we when we go beyond our current ways of understanding, uh, challenge ourselves, open to new possibilities, new perspectives. It's disorienting. It's fearful. It's fearful. Second one is power, because as you do practices, you do begin to develop various capacities and powers and insights, a little more a little more invulnerability to other people's maneuvers, and you see through the things they're trying to do, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The, the one I jumped to next was the last, the fourth, which was, he labeled it old age, but something a little broader, that is you know, the capacity whenever you, you know, when one is not feeling well, when one is, uh, is not at one's best, to give in, to just not to continue growing, basically, that's, that's the trap. To, to, to stop and rest where you are, it's the, it's the Buddhist equivalent of the heaven realms. You know, it's a night where we're, we're having a nice time. Why go further? But the third one is the really interesting one for us at the moment. And that one is clarity. And the idea that, you know, clarity as a trap, it's just so counterintuitive. And yet once you understand it, it makes total sense. And it becomes a really uh, valuable reframe on both clarity and confusion, not knowing. And there are different kinds of confusion. One is just not having enough information or being overwhelmed. But another is, is the recognition of, oh, there's more input than I can currently make sense of. But one thing one learns after you've been into that experience enough is if I sit with the confusion and the not knowing and the overload long enough, the mind has its own integrative and healing capacities. You know, if we treat the mind well, if we, you know, just open to it, trust it, the mind turns out to be self-healing, self-actualizing, self-transcending. So, you know, we just have to sit with our confusion and it will begin to integrate in useful and healing ways. Mm. So paradox and confusion are the two pillars of the temple and fear and clarity, or at least two of the four of Castanadas. And, and to me, that speaks directly to something I've been seeing lately. And I don't know if this has been true in your world. Maybe you've just got enough seasoned friends and colleagues that are not falling for this. But for me, at least on the, on the talking head, 
intellectual dark web X risk podcasty circuit of things, um, I'm seeing a surprising number of people facing the paradox and the confusion of our current world, perhaps experiencing a certain amount of fear as to what the fuck is going on and what do we do now, going to clarity. Right, yes. go, go, going to they've actually they collapsed the waveform. They 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 sort of ceased to be willing or or able to tolerate the paradox and the confusion, and they've now got a dog in the fight. And whether that's I'm now convinced that you know, and to your point about there are no singular narratives. Coming back to your critique of Harari, right? What's going on with COVID? What's going on with lockdowns? What's going on with new world order? What's going on with governments? Who are they? What's really really going on right now but what I've, I've been shocked actually by people that i admire people that i respect people that i look to to triangulate through this landscape and they're sort of sliding off that convexity you know into the tank into the tank or the ditch and they're sort of like now they know what's really going on and they'll describe it almost as the scales have fallen from my eyes or you know it's, it's the it, you know the extreme version is being red pilled but People are sort of doing that. And I'm sort of like, how have you given up holding the paradoxes? How have you given up fine-grained, particular evidence-based analysis for this seemingly false certainty that almost borders on hubris of like, I know what's going on right now? Are you yeah. experiencing any of that? Uh, yes, and I don't find it so surprising because one of the things we know very clear from psychological research is that under stress, people tend to regress psychologically. And uh, when they're regressed, <coughs> the, the, literally the visual field tends to contract, <coughs> the perspective tends to shorten, the development tends to shrink from world-centric to ethnocentric to egocentric. What's in it for me? How can I ensure my family's survival, etc.? And simplicity. What A search for what's the one simple thing that explains it all. And so, uh, yes, one would like to think that, that uh, smarts would be an antidote to this, but as we know, then often not. <clears throat> and the question then becomes, uh, given that people tend to regress under stress, and given that we as a culture and a planet are going to be fa are facing and are going to be facing increasing degrees of stress, in some cases the likes of which we haven't seen, what can we do to help people uh, respond more skillfully? And there are three things that can be done to help people under, under stress uh, respond more skillfully and effectively. One is to give them a framework for understanding this and it's not a simple one, one answer explains it all thing, but some constructive framework. I'll talk generally first. We can get into details later if you wish. Second is to point, out, point a way out. You have to give some, some hope to the person. And the third is, is, here's what you can do. Here are some possibilities for constructive action that you can undertake. So, so, so the number two, pointing the way out, you're saying necessary but not sufficient. And then you point three, you actually need something practical, something the kind of classic, what I, what can I do on Monday morning? What's my step towards fulfilling number two? Yeah, those, those are the three characteristics we know help people respond in less regressive, more constructive ways to to major stresses and challenges. 
So okay. I, t I think that, that that speaks to some of the things that those of us who are you know, deeply concerned about these issues need to be doing. That is, we're in, as many people have pointed out, you included, a time of competing narratives, competing myths or between myths, whatever you want to frame it. And what are the most constructive framework, not only stories and narratives, but worldviews and perspectives we can offer? And what are some of the what that uh, and what are some of the suggestions that can be made for why there's still hope, if we ho hold there is? And third, what are some things that each of us can do? So I'll tell you what, Lisa, uh, you want to play that game? Sure, let, 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 sure. Let's just play that game, right? Oh. So, so, so you, you've given us a beautiful frame, and I would imagine for anybody listening, they're probably fucking, hey, thank God, like some, some version of why this isn't just pile driving me into the ground of nihilistic despair. Um, because I, I find myself um, in you know, public commentary often dismantling what appear to be flimsy and insufficient um, nostrums, you know, sort of, you know, false cures, basically, right? Which leaves me, if you know, like if you track the semantic analysis of whatever the last several years of me <laughs> saying things out loud, um, many of them, 80% of them are critical and dismantling of contemporary hockey stick utopian stories simply because i just keep yeah. seeing those things and it and it and it feels like a um you know almost an un unconscionable is a bit moralistic but certainly an inefficient waste of our time if we're getting sucked into those just so stories because the redemption curve is almost always some deus ex machina redemption you know everyone will do mdma and then we'll all heal all of our childhood trauma and then oh, yes. right and then we'll all figure it out and solve the planet or we will all do my you know buy my nft or we'll all upload to the web3 and it won't be mean and nasty facebook anymore i mean these are almost just family dynamic like they're they're, they're sort of amazingly weak you, sauce you omitted quantum physics will save us yeah, 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 any number of these things, right? But they, but they all fall. Once you see the pattern, you can't unsee it, and it ruins you for polite conversation because you're like, oh, there's just another one. It's just another fucking. This is this is just another costume party of the same, you know, of the same structural dress up. But um, you know, and, and I think you and I might have talked about this last time. But uh, Zach Stein, Mark Gaffney, some of the other folks that we know have 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 dived into that the Hebrew and even Kabbalistic tradition of that pre-tragic, tragic, post-tragic, post you know, that idea of, and I would, you make, you know, that that's the installment process. We go from thinking everything's going to work out the pre-tragic to then getting running into the brick wall of, it could just be regular old life or it could be our existential metacrisis. And now you are in the throes of the tragic and that either drops you to your knees or particularly led by demagogues right and false messiahs back to the pre-tragic like you can have everything you wanted and it's somebody else's fault that you didn't get it you know but now we're going to rally you know or you make that move to the full installment of post-tragic and that's you know that's anything from um mlk and gandhi and satyagraha and soul force you can also um i think ascribe that to uh any of the diaspora 
communities, you know, just people from the Roma Gypsies to the Kurds to, to, to you know, Ashkenazi Jews, you know, people who have dealt with intergenerational suffering and they've had to wrap their heads around that. How do we keep on keeping on, you know, all the way in, in the East to the Bhagavad Gita, you know, right, of the Ajna Krishna dialogue, which was, which was, you can't, you know, you have to abandon your cherished outcomes, aka the pre-tragic, I'm going to be the hero and win the day, you know, look, wrestle with the tragic, you know, of the, you know, I've got, here's this grand battle and my family's on both sides and I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a um, kingslayer, you know, one way or the other to the post-tragic, which in, in the Gita is, as you know, you, you, you know, deeply is, is that sense of, your redemption lies in the fulfillment, the fulfillment of your dharma, the thing you, that's yours and yours alone to do. But you, ha you, you have to abandon your cherished outcomes. Yes. Right. Yes. And then even the, you know, and then a contemporary example, just because if anybody's tracking this, this shit's important. I would suggest, <laughs> which is here's how you have to. We have to be able to get out of bed on the Monday morning. We have to have that option two and three, which is what is. Here's a model, pre-tragic, tragic, post-tragic. Here's mm -hmm. the. Uh, wh what was your middle one? Your middle one was. Here's the way through. Oh, his his his, his, his his yeah his 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 hope. There's hope. Here's yes. why there's hope. Yes. Here's a path for hope, and then way three is what is some version of at least an, a, an initial roadmap. Here's how we yeah. get going. Yeah. Right. And and then here's what you can do. Yeah. And then and then obviously the the contemporary Western version of all this is the Admiral Stockdale Jim Stockdale Stockdale paradox from Vietnam POWs, which was mm -hmm. um, the people who survived POW camp were the ones who were ruthlessly realistic about current reality and endlessly optimistic about the long term right i didn't i didn't know that that's beautiful to know isn't yeah. it you know because i mean that was lived experience he's like he's like the pessimist died in, in the camps but so did the optimist because when they're when the optimistic things didn't came and went the dates when we were going to get released or salvation didn't come they had nothing left they had nothing left. Uh, okay. and so that was you know jim collins famously popularized this in his uh um was it good to great i think it was probably good to great that book mm -hmm. uh, but yeah i mean and i didn't realize at the time i was like oh the stockdale paradox of vietnam pow's is really really spitting distance to the teachings of the gita right yeah. Right yeah. of redemption lies in our dharma, not in our cherished outcomes, and I think that's a reason why the Gita became because it's, it's a weird left field text, right? To show up with Thoreau, Emerson, MLK, lots of you know contemporary or modern transformational leaders, right? Who at some point they probably had a pre-tragic vision of what they were doing. You know, we're going to throw off the yoke of British colonialism, or we're going to end segregation in the U.S. or whatever it would be, and then ran into the tragic of like this is a clusterfuck, and I'm effectively being dragged into martyrdom. There's no way through this, you know, and all my cherished outcomes are 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 just trashed. How do where do I go from here? You know, and that Gita Stockdale paradox kind of lifeline, which is abandon your cherished outcomes. You yeah. know, but keep going anyway. Yes, and I think you're pointing to actually what I take uh, Jamie to be one of the one of the most appropriate uh, or applicable spiritual practices for our time. And you're effectively talking about karma yoga. And there are within the Hindu tradition there are four major yogas. There's the yoga yoga of love or bhakti. There's jnana yoga, which is the yoga of wisdom or insight. There's raja yoga, which is the yoga of of meditation and practice, but there's karma yoga, and karma yoga is the yoga of work and action in the world. And it's the yoga in which we use what we're doing in the world or our work, our, our calling, 
as a spiritual practice. And, and in its simplest forms, you just laid it out. It's a threefold process. One offers whatever action or work one's doing to Brahman or to God or to a higher source, some transpersonal, transpersonal uh, source. One does the work as impeccably as one possibly can. And here's the knife edge while simultaneously a releasing attachment to the outcome. And it's that simultaneous releasing attachment to the outcome, which is the razor's edge, which undercuts the egocentricity and hope and fear and the very factors you spoke to in Stockdale and what allows people to survive some of those camps. But it's that three, it, it's, and it sounds very simple until, of course, as with all practices, you start trying to do it. And then, of course, it turns out to be, oh, there's a little more to this than I thought. Uh, but it's a very powerful practice, and it's particularly appropriate to our time and to activism or contribution in such an extraordinarily challenging and, and potentially very dark times where the out, we can't be sure of the outcome. We can't be sure that anything we do will actually ensure the survival of our species or ensure the survival of our democracy, or maybe even keep ourselves alive for another decade. But as you said, there is a form of vitality that comes from knowing that the that doing doing one's work for the work itself is is enlivening and there's also a release of dis, of despair and attachment and depression if one is able to do one's best and simultaneously release the attachment so for many reasons you know i'm I'm a fan of all uh, multiple varieties of spiritual practices. My late wife, Frances Vaughan, used to call me spiritually promiscuous, <laughs> which is true. <laughs> but it was a form of promiscuity she could handle, so it's okay. <laughs> but, but I do think there's a real value of karma yoga in, a, in our time. And for anyone who isn't in a monastery, you know, if you're in, if you're engaged in life and you have a desire and aspiration and commitment to waking up, growing up, learning, learning, and you know, becoming, you know, living the fullest life one can, then one needs to be a kami yogi, and it's also the best practice simultaneously for to underlie and contextualize one's activism. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, and also, right, just just to kind of translate that into sort of Western language, some, you know, ethic of care and concern and service, right? Yes. I mean, I mean, and something that I noticed because I've, I've, I've been baffled by, but also tracking, right? The incredible booming rise of mega churches in the West and especially in America, but, but now Australia, Europe, other places as well, right? And, and I kept, I've kept on wondering, like, why is it that those incredibly retro, um, theologies, right? Um, even if they get wrapped in, you know, Jesus rock and jumbotrons and snazzy jeans and sneaker game and, you know, all the things that current um, mega churches are doing, how, how are they booming? I mean, we've got one, you know, we're here in Texas, it's Austin, but it's still Texas. And, you know, at the corner of our street, we've seen this church go from a church to a K through 12 school, to a coffee shop, to additional buildings, to this whole campus and doing aggressive roll-ups of all the other underperforming churches in the entire area. So now that's 
central broadcast hub for things that are going off in half a dozen other locations. So now it's a, it, you know, you have to get a special ticket just to get into the main auditorium where the actual event is going down. And, you know, they've got the cops stopping traffic for them on Sundays and, you know, and the, and the parade of just high dollar suburbans and four by fours and all, you know, you're like, Jesus Christ, literally like this is, this is, this is, this is, you know, this is Texas wealth and power made manifest. And I was thinking, oh, okay. So the church always did this, right? Because, you know, in the Roman Catholic church, their, their land holdings in Europe, they were always baller power players. But I think that something that's happened in the mega church era, and it's, it's a uniquely American thing that's metastasized, which is not only did they say, pass the collection plate and chip in because it's your immortal soul. That's the value prop, right? right? But now they completely abandon Christian charity and service, what you were describing as karma yoga, and they fucking mutated into prosperity gospel, which is now here's the law of threefold return. And every, you know, every hundred you put in, you're, you, you could imagine you're supposed to get 300 back. And it's looped back to egoic material gratification, not, transmigration of souls, right? So yep. we've, we've created this bastard, and, it, and this obviously shows up in the new age as well, right? Where, where, where absolutely explicitly and without shame or apology, the intention of higher development is to get you more of what you want in this life. Well, yeah, except I would, I would say that uh, the uh, purpose of, of the enterprise, not necessarily of higher development, and I think, but and I think there's also a key thing there, and in that I personally don't believe you can understand religion without understanding two things. One is states of consciousness, and the other is developmental stages. And there are there is a religion for every developmental stage, and there are religious forms and expressions for each each of the major states of consciousness, or at least I should better say there are traditions for each of the major states of consciousness. So, but until you understand those, I don't think you can understand religion. So, so the fact well, that- uh, give, give us some examples of that. What, Cause that's a beautiful, I mean, I agree. And I, I'm thinking instantly of Jim Marion's uh, putting on the mind of Christ, right? Where he overlaid yeah. Christianity across developmental stages. And if anybody, by the way, is either a recovering Catholic or Christian or in your own personal practices are trying to wrestle with weird intrusions of Christic archetypes and mythology um by all means and but we're reverse because you don't want to be one of those jesus freaks you know seriously consider checking out putting on the mind of christ um because it's a neat book for um, people to find their way back into the levels of awareness you're talking about exactly and I, I agree completely and i would want to simplify and say that one of the major divisions is between conventional religion and contemplative religion. And the conventional religion centers around a, a narrative. And if you believe the narrative, you're saved. And if you don't believe it, you're, you're damned. And uh, your job, is, if you believe it, then your job is to help other people believe it. And or if they really, really don't, don't accept it, then maybe get rid of them. Uh, the contemplative religion is a, is a psychotechnology for training the training the psyche, the heart, to cultivate states, states of mind and qualities and virtues to, to essentially recapitulate the recognition and realization of the founders. So those are two radically different kinds of religion. And our culture has no understanding of them whatsoever. 
well, no understanding that there's a not that there's a contemplative form. I and mean, now, actually, I'm being a little extreme. The culture is beginning to wake up and to use the use the framework that you and I have both uh, appreciated a lot. That comes from uh, some anthropologists. Our culture is shifting from a monophasic to a polyphasic culture. Monophasic cultures derive their understanding of ourselves and reality from predominantly a single state of consciousness, usually the waking, waking state. Polyphasic cultures draw their understanding of human nature and reality from multiple states, dream, yoga, meditative, contemplative, trance, etc., etc., etc. And we, our culture, beginning in the 60s, has begun the slow, somewhat turbulent transition from a monophasic to a polyphasic culture. And we're actually in a, being in a minority because 90% of the world's cultures, according to the anthropologist Bouchanon, have institutionalized altered states of consciousness. But Western culture has been one of the very few that had, or the, one of the minority that hasn't. And we've been in transition. Once you see that, you can make a lot of sense of things like the turbulence of the 60s and understand where the introduction of psychedelics came from, you know, how that catalyzed that and led to the influx of Eastern traditions and then the revival of our own Western contemplative practices, etc. So so that's all all to say that all to say that that the mega churches make sense once you appreciate that most of the majority of the population is doing conventional ritualized practice centered on a narrative and that narrative is often in the service of the ego that the that the mythological churches and not just christianity serve in large part to strengthen and support the current narrative rather than to undercut and transform the narrative. Mm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's just some interesting things for, for listeners to unpack, which is if, if you know, let me let me run this past you and, and see if this tracks, which is that polyphasic cultures who had a wide range of both neurophysiological states and the psychological interior experiences that accompany them were to traditionally, typically indigenous, right? Slash traditional. Then you get the Western Enlightenment, you get, you know, I, I think, therefore, I am Western empiricism, five senses, if I can't measure it, it's not real, monophasic Western culture. And then you were saying with the advent of the 60s, etc., we're kind of experiencing that kind of return of Dionysian to blend with the Apollonian, you know, that notion of like, state experiences being, you know, keys to the kingdom. And what does the at least the possibility of a postmodern polyphasic culture look like because we haven't had one of those yet does that track okay yeah that, that makes total sense and you're right we are in a whole in a new era in so many ways and so many dimensions but one of them is we have we haven't had a contemplative a a large number of contemplatives with access to technology we haven't had uh, we haven't had people who are who are trying to express their understanding through, say, social media, et cetera, make use of these tools. And part of the integration of our times is not only mastering certain contemplative practices and disciplines and training, uh, accessing different states and perhaps moving to moving up a, a developmental stage. It's also 
the process of integration, but the process of integration in our time is more complex because now it requires meshing with a culture and a technology that's far more sophisticated and differentiated and complex than any we've had in history. Yeah, and the first thing, I mean, you know, when you say traditional religion, most people can think of, you know, kind of waspy or Catholic, locked down, really dull, unimaginative and non-transcendent religiosity or, or social compliance. Like I show up in church, it smells and bells, we kneel, we sit, we pray, we do the thing, we go home. And it's mostly social club slash, you know, notion of belonging. And that's, that, that's the equivalent, I think, to sort of monogamy as bed death. You're like, oh yeah, of course, that's shitty old, boring, dull religion. And, and of course, all those religions are declining. They're, 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 they're shitting the bed right now. The only ones that are winning, quote unquote, in the battle of hearts and minds are, are Pentecostal evangelicals because they're kicking out the jams, right? And you realize, oh wait, so we've now got access, you know, access to state priming, meaning can you put people in a non-ordinary state? is I, th I would say a ubiquitous, you know, social and now commercial technology. And, and, and if anybody hasn't seen The Righteous Gemstones on HBO, it's a hilarious parody. Jim, uh, uh, John Goodman, the actor, as well as Danny McBride, who writes it, is it, it's basically a three-generation evangelical megachurch family. And they just take the piss out of it, but do it sincerely. So there's, it's not a sort of smug looking down on that world is kind of within the world. And, and one of the things you notice is that those jumbotron Jesus rocker mega churches save the bangers. They save their absolute kick out the jam, maximum euphoric uh, songs, their praise music for the time the collection plate goes around. Oh. Right? So you get people in maximal state feeling the Holy Ghost feeling and being absolutely encouraged to reach into their wallets and give for Jesus. And at the same time, Tony Robbins does I, the identical movement, which is whip people into a frenzy right before the upsell. So you have this co-optation of what could have been numinous, transpersonal, non-dual, bodhisattvic-like states or whatever it is, geared straight in right, to late-stage capitalism. And the, the, the mechanisms, and obviously our, our colleague, Alan Combs, you know, did a great job of talking about, hey, states and stages, like you can access a state from a different level of development. And I think what we've, what we've got is we've got an awful lot of people quite consciously from a traditionalist point of view, but a kind of, you know, a, a contemporary traditionalism, aka the megachurches, accessing states, right, to, to, grow their, to, to grow their money, to grow their income versus collection place. And you've got all the personal growth, new age, you know, seemingly secular folks also becoming masters of state priming, right, to do much of the same. So the states in and of themselves don't seem to be sufficient to break the chokehold of egoic consciousness or consumer capitalism. So what, what's the way through there? Because like if they if that can't do it, we're stuffed. I mean, I don't know if we've got other options. Well, and I'm glad you said that the states themselves are not sufficient. I think that's a very, uh, very ex excellent phrasing because certain, first off, we need to, again, draw multiple distinctions. There are any number of ordered states and some of them are more conducive to uh, fostering purification, to use an old fashioned word, cultivation of virtues and capacities and to 
moving, fostering move, uh, psychological development. So first off, we need to have that differentiation. But so it's clearly, but the, clearly there are some states which are historically and and contemplatively, and I think we can some of it, we can say phenomenologically for some of us who played with them, they do conduce towards say altruism and and compassion and love and the desire to contribute, and they're they're temporary states, as you pointed out in your in your in your in your books. Uh, they have they have something more has to be done. They have to how and the challenge is to transform transient states into enduring traits and peak experiences into into personality and altered states into altered state into into different stages. So and that is is really challenging. And Houston Smith, the great religious scholar, said it beautifully. He said. The challenge is to transform flashes of illumination into abiding light. And that's a challenge. And, and I often think that, that, it's, that it's as much a challenge, you know, a lot of us, you know, with the exception of things like psychedelics, you know, you have to do a fair bit of work to, to reliably induce uh, profound altered states. But it's just as challenging to transform the altered states into altered traits. And it's just as challenging to, to use those traits to foster maybe moving up a developmental stage. So it's a, it's a lot of work. So the states are conducive, but as you said, they're not sufficient. Mm. And, and so how do we make use of those? And traditionally, the idea was you need a palette of practices to induce not just states, but various capacities and various virtues. And you went through, you know, traditionally mysticism was the was the first the stage of purification and purgation, then the stage of illumination, and then the stage of the the spiritual life, bringing that into life or back to integration, as we've been talking about. So mm. lots of parameters to be considered here. Mm. Well, well let, let me run this past you since we're, since we're just kind of on this topic and we're kind of riffing on the mono and polyphasic things. Um, because for me, as I became increasingly under-convinced that developmental stage group, vertical development, was, was actually doing nearly as much as we had hoped. You know, I knew lots of clever people that would shit the bed when it came to stressful situations. And you knew lots of clever people that were maladapted for fitness and survivability, you know, all those kinds of things. I'm just like, I'm under convinced um, that simply scoring better on a, on a recent metric of how complex my linguistic, you know, sense-making was really indicated much of anything, including just, you know, you just get increasingly sophisticated, passive aggressive douchebaggery happening at those levels, you know, like, so you're like, okay, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it would be really neat if everybody just transformed into bodhisattvas, but I just, I'm not seeing that. So something that we've shared with our, with our community, and I want to run this past you is my sense of like, what is a more practical, functional, um, you know, definition of like, you know, basically 21st century Western enlightenment is basically a, you know, facility across a polyphasic spectrum. So the ability for me to match my state to the task at hand, right? So I can, I can be expansive and non-dual if I'm on a mountaintop. I can be, you know, ruthless and focused if I'm in a street fight. I can be nurturing if I'm 
cuddling a child. I can be those things and I can do, I can make those adjustments sort of seamlessly, fluidly and appropriately. And that to me feels like, a, 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 you know, at least for me, a more practical working definition of what does it mean to be an integrated human? I'm not, I'm not positing a subject object split of there's some happy hill for me to climb. And once I get there, I'm, I'm absolved of all these challenges. I get it roots me in the human condition, but it basically just says, am I showing up in the appropriate, you know, neurophysiological and psychological condition to match that? Does that track for you? Yeah, in several ways. I think what you're talking about in the traditional terms, and I think particularly of Confucianism here, is the is the practical wisdom as which was defined as appropriateness. Mm. And that that's the core concept underlying the idea of practical wisdom in Confucianism. And I think it's a very important idea. And what you're suggesting is appropriateness is not just the just a, an action, but actually being able to have sufficient uh, mental fluidity to be able to match one's, match one's state of mind and being to the task. And uh, to have the skills to be able to do that is no... In fact, and, I would and, and say, somatic intelligence as well, yeah. right? Not somatic, just emotional, mm -hmm. mental, and spiritual. All, all of the ones, I think you used the word being... And I would I would very much agree with agree with that. That and as far as I can see, one of the hallmarks of successful or effective psychotherapists, teachers, etc., is flexibility. And I, I think that's just un you know, we teach so much about the way to be as a teacher or as a this or a that. But uh, much more important than the way is the range of ways and this capacity for being being flexible and appropriate. So though all of which is a skill unto itself, it's a skill to learn to be, learn multiple states or multiple skills. It's a, another skill to learn which is appropriate and it's another skill to have the fluidity to be able to apply them. So there's multiple skills underlying what you've said. Now, I would um, suggest that what you're pointing to is not so much uh, de psychological development as uh, developing capacities at one's current developmental stage. And I certainly wouldn't want to equate, and I know you weren't, though there may have been the implication there, that uh, SMART is any indication of developmental stage. <laughs> and unfortunately, we know that's not true. We've, see, we've seen it enough. And, and the another key dimension, which we haven't talked about much here, but which is absolutely crucial, which underlies so much of the issues we've discussed is intention. And that out of intention come, come so much. And that the refining and honing and purification of one's intention and the up-leveling of it and the development of it is just seems a crucial aspect. And as you point out, it's very easy to uh, use altered states and pr various practices, even which in themselves may have a bent or, or a predilection towards transcendence and towards fostering development. It's very easy to subvert them to egocentric uses. But So the question is, the, the con, and I think the idea of the, uh, just take a moment and say, 
there are a couple of kinds of questions. There are knowledge questions. Is it raining outside? Look outside the window. Answer no. End of question. But there are wisdom questions, which are which are more like cones. You, the, they have a potential each time you ask them to take you deeper into the question, deeper into yourself, and deeper into reality. And so the question of what's my intention and what I want to be my intention, those are wisdom questions, which ideally we'll be asking for the rest of our lives. And the answers we give will really shape and direct our lives and our destiny. And so I just want to put in a big plug for, for an ongoing attention to our intention. Mm. Well, then that feels like loops. I mean, I'm still, I'm still kind of thinking of your Zen pillars of confusion and paradox and, and the power, the seduction of power and the seduction of clarity and Castaneda stuff, because that to me, the intention right now does feel like it is still in the feathering of my egoic, rational, separate identity, consumer nest. Like I want more cool shit for me to see and be and have. And so if my intention in seeking any of these states and going in, in, in you know, scraping the shelves of the spiritual marketplace for all the whiz bang gadgets and gizmos is still about me, is still about self-aggrandizement, it feels like we're going to get these strange results, <laughs> you know, these results that are divorced from the karma yoga, divorced, divorced, because am I right in reading that like, you know, you could make a case that the inquiry of intention is at least addressed by karma yoga, like in service of, mm -hmm. right? Versus, versus for, for me. Um, well, do, do you want to, I mean, we, we've, you know, we've got maybe, you know, another five to 10 minutes. I'd, I'd love to just keep chatting with you the infinite amounts of things for us to, to touch base on. Um, but back to the notion of here's a path, you know, here's the, here's a model, here's a frame for the situation. Here's a, reason to hope and then here are steps to take um my my personal sense is the frame of looking at this meta crisis is um in any linear this generation terms i'm not seeing any indicators of us not heading to a hard landing just all the hopes of and all the hand wringing and the pleading of we've still got time if you know if only we act now or like the silver lining to this ridiculously grim climate report is we have the information if we only start now you know like the trend lines just don't seem to um be especially encouraging and that's before really we're even um wrestling with any of the material challenges we're still sort of debating this we can see the horizon line of niagara falls we're in our little wooden barrel and we're like no shit you know but we haven't yet had impact right so so impact is is tbd um but my sense of the hope is the idea that us as western monophasic rational individuals probably won't get ours like we may not, you know, we, we may not get everything that we want as far as happy resolution in our lifetimes, right? But that notion of a radical hope, which you and I have spoken of, Jonathan Lear's work at, at University of Chicago is that sense of we need to expand our timeframes. Because if it's just me, my, me, mine, and now, which is how we've been conditioned as consumers to think we're all going to be fucking pissed off and distraught. 
potentially just suicidal there, you know, because if we don't get ours, we're, we're conditioned to believe it's a total fail versus what we talked about, those diaspora communities, intergenerational hope, radical hope is something, you know, we, we keep for the future. Um, and then that sense of, can we expand the, our reason for being? Why do I do the hard things, right? What is my Kama Yoga? Can we actually, create, you know, re-implement a transgenerational Kama Yoga? I'm doing this for my children's children. So some version of, um, of an, you know, arguably like that Svalbard seed bank, right? For seeds, for heirloom seeds, that idea of like, we're going to create a bunker of light, right? They're like, we, we want to make art, we want to leave artifacts, we want to keep the flame alive. You know, it's a little bit like Hanukkah for, for, for Jews, that sense of like, we're going to return to the rituals. We're going to retell the tales. We're going to remember our ancestors and we're going to pass this forward for our descendants. To me, that feels like an essential buffer for maintaining hope, radical hope, at a time when lots of our hopeful hope will probably just be ripped through our hands in the slipstream. How does that sound to you? Uh, yes, uh, is the short answer. And in particular, what you pointed to was the necessity of moving to a larger, larger goal than just just ourselves, moving to uh, effectively a service goal. And it's very clear: meaning and purpose comes re requires having a a perspective and aspiration larger than oneself. Although it's, otherwise, it's, it's not enough to sustain us in the long term. Um, so that, and there are lots of, you know, there are lots of frameworks we can hold, hold here. Um, and the question, and, and, you know, I could give my own framework that I, you know, the big picture meta perspective, uh, but I'd also encourage you know, anyone to, to look for themselves as to what's the largest meaning structure that they can hold for this. For myself, you know, just to mention one, you know, you mentioned going, taking a big picture perspective. Well, look at say Toynbee's survey of world history and uh, the fact that, you know, civilizations are damn complex things and entropy is never ending and it takes a lot of work and ingenuity to keep us first to create a civilization and then to keep it going. And there are always challenges. And Toynbee's uh, recognition was that there are always what he called challenges and responses. And, and the response, if, the, if a civilization is to five, it always comes from, in Toynbee's accounting anyway, from what he called a creative minority. And as far as I can see, a creative minority does three things. First, it recognizes the challenge way ahead of most people. Then it, then it, in, then it comes up with a some sort of uh, one or more possible solutions. So, so so solution. And then third, the perhaps most challenging is inspiration. And inspiration can take a lot of work, as we are seeing. Just just trying to wake people up to the reality of the challenges we're facing. So. So one big picture context is, wait a minute, this situation we're facing in, is in some ways absolutely unique. We've never had nuclear weapons. We've never had potential global, global you know, ecological collapse. And yet in another is a one more cycle of a recurrent story. And 
we know from history what it takes in terms of the general principles. Okay, so that's the that's a big one big picture context, one possible hope. Well, you can look at this from any other mess from any number of perspectives from the it's all doom and gloom to adapt to we got to adapt to a going under to to bunkerism to techno utopianism and you know we're going to solve it all with the next technology or we can sit in the fire of not knowing and the mystery and say paradox and know, the confusion paradox and confusion thank you we do not know how this is going to turn out but we do know it's going to be up to us okay so what can i do and then it's like and the, the what can i do it's really essential to recognize is that whenever we come up with a with a big social global problem it's what it always comes down to if we're going to be really constructive and contributory is what can i do it's yes. like it's, we start off with well they should do that and they should do this but it always comes down to if we're going to be effective what can i do and it's really important to recognize that the what can I do is not a standard question. It's a wisdom question. And it's a wisdom question that we have to live with and ask ourselves repeatedly time and time again, because there's no one final answer. It keeps changing as we keep changing. And if we keep asking the question, it will grow us and our, our answers will become more effective and, as you said, more appropriate. So. Mm -hmm. That's one context Beautiful. for how to approach this, the challenges we're facing. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of on this sort of intermittent search for what is my, what is my, um, basically Occam's razory minimum ontology or metaphysics. Like, yeah. what do I think? Like, what, what is the absolute parsimonious, the, the, the minimalist, least bells and whistles way of describing reality as close to reality as possible? So I have to wrestle with the fewest error messages, you Love know? It. And, and, and what I was one of the pieces to it is, is thinking um, on the metaphysics side, to me, I think like all I need to know, all I have, the only article of faith I need to get up out of bed and to act for a life is, do I believe that a little more goodness, truth and beauty in the world, in the universe is better than a little less? Yes. And, yes. and given all the chaos, all the uncertainty, all the futilities, all the everythings, if I sit like that, that's my one article of faith, which is it's worth fucking trying. Because I think a little more love mm -hmm. is better than less Then I have my reason for being. And, and I was actually on a hike with, with, a, with a friend uh, last week, you know, down, down to some uh, creek here in, in Austin, which we always, always love to go and sit by. And he was kind of like, hey, what are you doing? What are you thinking these days? What are you up to? And I was like, well, honestly, I've kind of given up. I've given up on um, trying to move the needle on society, civilization, where we are, et cetera. But I, I'm just doubling down on um, feeding the holy. I'm doubling down on observing and celebrating and participating in the beauty of this earth because it is still going off. Like even if we are reading doom and gloom reports and, 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 and wheels off situations, like the sun comes up, the sun goes down, there are shooting stars and planets. There are beautiful, you know, there are beautiful expressions of life on this earth and they're still happening every day. And right now, at least for me, I'm choosing, you know, backcountry skiing. I'm choosing, right, like, like the chance to be connected to these things and have my heart filled. And, and my sense was, and it was, hey, look, if, if all the linear charts and graphs go off the cliff and that's pretty grim, um, then in some respects, there is 
important acceptance of those things, which leaves me with nothing else to do but feed the holy, Martin Prechtel's term, right? The idea of like, can I bear witness to this ongoing mystery? And the interesting thing is, 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 that, is that paradoxically, if all those linear material things go off the cliff, so we're kind of fucked on that level of reality. And, the, and, and but the only thing that might save us is some, is some numinous transcendent, <laughs> you know, catalytic event, then actually, weirdly, me and or anybody else, all of us feeding the holy is actually going to be one of those things that's keeping that doorway open to grace. That's what leaves space for grace. So it's, it's not necessarily retreat, resignation, solipsism, crawling up my own asshole, whatever it is. It's actually, no, we're, we're tending the gate, right, to leave space for grace. To your point about what you, you said something about um, leaving, you know, markers for hope, right, right, right. Making art, basically making art. If you think of Dylan's Blowing in the Wind, if you think of all the songs that accompanied all the civil, I don't think the civil rights movement could have worked. I don't think those marches would have been, would have been functional if they hadn't had the songs to sing across the Selma Bridge, right? So, so making art, right? Bearing witness and, and that that's what leaves the space for grace. That's the place where radical hope, and it may not, you know, if not, you know, and, it, and it's MLK's last speech the night before he was shot, right? That there is a mountain, how long, not long. I may not get there with you, right? But I'm going to keep on testifying, right? In the hopes that one of us someday does. And, and, and the, I didn't even realize this. This just came out in a, in a conversation, um, you know, a few months ago. But it, to me, the Lord of the Rings is the most badass example of this. Like the same way that like Admiral Stockdale kind of embodies the Bhagavad Gita's teachings. You're like, oh, the Lord of the Rings, if you think about it, like Gollum is this slippery, slimy little fuck, right? Bent to darkness. And, and Frodo, Bilbo, they all want to kill him at some point. So do the dwarves, so do the elves. And Gandalf's like, hold off, hold off. He may have yet some still some part to play, right? So there's compassion, right? So, you know, goodness, truth, and beauty. There's, there's the exercise of compassion without knowledge of outcome. And then the ending at Mount Doom is so, is so beautiful, right? Because Gollum, you know, and he's wrestling with Schmeagol. He's going back and forth. Do I come back to the better angel of my nature? Am I reduced to the dark? And he's constantly battling. And the pat Hollywood answer would be, he becomes Schmeagol. He's redeemed by the love and compassion. He's actually not. He actually reverts back to his darkest nature and grabs the My Precious, bites it off Frodo. So he is back into his darkness, right? But in the biting of the ring and grabbing it, he is actually what takes it into, the, into Mount Doom and accomplishes the great work, right? But he wouldn't mm -hmm. have been able, if the original compassion, the leaving space for grace without knowledge of, of outcome hadn't been in place. So in some respect, love wins the day even though it was greed and and darkness that threw the switch mm, mm. so so my sense is in, in the leaving space for grace it's not just catchy because it rhymes it's that sense of like we, you know man proposes god disposes right <laughs> thomas a Kempis, right that that's we can't fucking control this shit but it, it and and basically the outcomes are almost certainly not going to be linear they're not going to be i attempted to do this thing and this thing worked and saved the day it's going to be orthogonal 
you know, it's going to be ricochet shots and, and bank shots and unintended consequences. But if we give up on holding for the light, if we give up on feeding the holy, then the race is surely lost. Yeah. Right. Yes. But if we, if we can bear witness without attachment to outcome, but with radical hope that it will ultimately make the difference one day, someday, somehow, that we have a shot at this. Yes. Beautiful. Beautifully said. And in, in, in that sense, the shot is no matter what the outcome, we, we follow our, our, our ideal, the, yeah. the choice we have, the fundamental choice we've made. And going back to what, what you started with, you talked about a minimalist metaphysics, that is, and each of us, each of us founds a worldview on a presupposition. And part of growth is bringing that those presuppositions and to awareness, and the one of the most fundamental presuppositions is to reduce suffering to foster the good, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And that alone, as you said, that that can be that can be the foundational motive out of which a life can and meaning and purpose can on which it can be founded. And in the con all, all of which is within, as you were pointing to in your in the story, uh, the not knowing the mystery. Mm. All it's all within within mystery, and yet, and yet, and yet, we choose. Mm. Beautiful. So 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 the TLDR of that is is love conquers all. Parenthesis. It just might take a while. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it might not happen, but we don't know, and it's up to us. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, Beautiful. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.